Welcome. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a hematologist oncologist, and I'm associate professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. In my professional life, I see patients, I teach trainees, and I do research in healthcare policy. This is Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and you're listening to Season 3. On this week's episode... This week on Plenary Session, we got Matthew Smith. Professor of Philosophy Matthew Smith is back from Northeastern University. By popular demand, people want to hear what he has to say. You won't want to miss this discussion. You know, normally every week you hear me say, if you're a fan of this show, go support us on Patreon. you get access to the slides. I got something new to say this time. I think the good old days are over. We're living in a unique time where people are very happy to extinguish voices and ideas that they deem unfit for consumption. And so I personally have gone on Patreon. I've supported a number of people who I listen to, the podcast that I love, and I'm encouraging you to do the same. The only way we can combat this growing force of illiberalism is to support with our dollar bills podcast we enjoy. So that's my plug. I'm back in plenary session. I'm joined by Professor Matthew Smith. Matthew Smith is Associate Professor of Philosophy at Northeastern University in the Northeast, in Boston, Massachusetts. Um, Dr. Smith, it's a pleasure to have you back. It is a really, it's a real pleasure to be back. Thank you for having me. Hey, people really liked your last episode. People loved it. I got a lot of positive, um, I've got a lot of positive email and people wanted to take me to task because I, um, I, uh, I may, I, I, I often make this error. Um, when I talk to you and when I talk to other people who I'm, I get very excited about talking with, um, I, I step on your words and I, I cut you off too much. So I'm going to try to do better this time. I think listeners, uh, I don't know if they don't know this, but you know, I'm actually not a professional moderator. <laughs> I, have, I have a day job. Dr. Smith, um, how are you doing? I'm fine, thanks. Making it. You know, it's, uh, I think with everyone, we're, uh, it's, especially in the Northeast, and actually um, during the middle of winter, it's a tough, it's tough, it's grinding, but we're making it. Thanks for asking. And I just want to say that uh, one of the things that makes, that's great talk, that's great about talking with you and about listening to you talk, it's actually your enthusiasm <laughs> is actually one of the things that draw, I think for me at least draws me in and perhaps draws other people in. No, so, thanks for that. So I, I wanted to, say. I wanted to start by asking you a question. Um, we're a year into the pandemic and uh, I think in late March, early April of last year, we were advised to wear community masks. Now a year yep. in, they have an update for you, Dr. Smith. It's two masks, yeah. my friend. It's two masks, not one. Okay? I want you to know that too. <laughs> so what are your thoughts as a philosopher? I mean, I don't know, one year into something and somebody comes to you and the headlines say, we got a mannequin. It was spraying an aerosol from its rubber mouth. And we put two of these on instead of one and less of that aerosol sprayed out. What, what does that, I mean, what, what runs through your mind when you hear this kind of thing? Well, this comes back just to uh, the main thing that runs through my mind uh, after recognizing that I'm not in a position to assess the scientific, uh, the quality of the scientific research. Um, the main thing that runs, that runs through my mind is actually what has run through my mind throughout the past year, which is, well, at least I'd say since uh, May or so or April when I sort of got my footing after the initial discombobulation of everything shutting down and the descent of a kind of miasma of fear mm -hmm. somewhat rationally. Mm -hmm. um, once I, once I kind of got a grip of things, I realized that one of the, 
problems with this sort of approach is that it pushes down responsibility for managing the pandemic onto individuals and thereby makes the question of in the spread of infection a matter of personal responsibility, a matter of, uh, it, it's a mistake each of us individually is making that's driving this pandemic as opposed to something that might be structural or systemic. And I think that when, while it's fine for them to maybe say, look, we've found, we've done some research, we found that these, this kind of mask arrangement is superior to that kind of mask arrangement, So, but and please do your best. That's one kind of message, but another kind of message is saying like, look, this is insufficient, you have to change what you're doing. Aside from just kind of changing expectations, I think that for me at least, the dominant move is a move that continues in the direction of forcing individuals to shape their own lives in response to the pandemic, to figure out for ourselves how we're going to manage in response to this kind of upheaval, as opposed to a different kind of approach, which might be, oh, I don't know. And, and, and look, I'm not actually saying <laughs> I've worked out whether or not this would work, but okay, look, um, we're going to start mailing people's masks. Use them if you can, right? Or we're going to start a mass distribution system where uh, you know we're going to up whatever. Look, I have no idea if that's possible, but anything that would actually uh, win an increased capacity with a demand to restrict our lives or shift our lives more individually is what I think is a move in the right direction. Move in the wrong direction is just to say you. Take responsibility. Fix this on your own. I, I, you know, honestly, I think that that's exactly the sort of thing that drives people towards a kind of, um, you know, pandemic nihilism. Yeah, I think that's that's so well said. And even resources beyond masks. It's why we're so wedded to the goddamn mask. What about you know? I was reading a study that said the number one risk of. Um, well, maybe I'll ask this to you. Um, I was reading the study that came out of California that looked at like risk of COVID death by occupation, and one and two were um, being a line cook in a restaurant, and two was being a construction worker. And I and I see construction workers. They're working and they're working on the buildings. And I see people say. Um, well, what do they call it? Hashtag support local business. Hashtag get takeout. Um, get takeout, you know, might keep you safe, but the people making the takeout, they're not safe. And and I just wish one ounce of the energy that went into telling me to wear two and maybe next year it'll be, maybe another year from now they'll learn it's three. Or maybe it takes a whole year to do this mannequin study. <laughs> okay, that, I have to just have to say, the fact it took one fucking year, I was just like, one year to take this mannequin and stuff some something in its mouth and spray it. I'm like, well, you got to at least sort it out in two weeks. Can't You don't get a year. You don't get a year to come back with, with two masks. Okay, anyway, I found it. I almost felt like I was in a Kafka novel. Um, but okay, but I wanted to say, um, the line cooks, um, you know, those are places where, you know, I don't know, it's scientific to figure out where the spread is happening and pour resources into those places, like maybe change the ventilation, give those workers N95. Maybe the answer is some of us have to cook more at home. I don't know. Um, you know, uh, I wonder what your thoughts on this are, the, the people who are paying the, the, the penalty, the brunt of this. Okay, well, I want to, um, I'm going to take this opportunity to make a case for something that uh, uh, you, uh, you probably didn't expect me to make a case for. And um, it's directly connected to this UCSF study that, uh, I mean, not, it is- It is by it my boss, on this, yeah. although it's, mm -hmm. it, I'm sorry? No, yes, you're right, it's a UCSF study, yes. And uh, I, and that's about, uh, and I, I, I'm actually not sure if you've covered this in one of your previous um, 
shows, but on uh, vaccination prioritization, vaccine mm, priority. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think that this is directly connected to this because one of the big systemic um, moves that the state and other kinds of social institutions have made in the past few months is actually vaccine distribution. And um, the thesis I, I, I sort of, I, I want to put out there to you and that I actually think um, thinking through a little bit and thinking about the arguments in favor of this thesis actually helps reveal certain things, at least for me it does. And perhaps I'm wrong in my thinking. I welcome any of your readers or listeners rather to um, weigh in. But the thesis is this, and that's that uh, we shouldn't prioritize doctors. Um, and I'm going to make a case for that. And I think that I love this it. Through, okay. Just said, yeah, let's talk uh, it out. Is, yeah. Is useful. So uh, the first thing is that um, I think that we need to consider the different kinds of arguments in favor of putting doctors ahead. So the first argument in favor of putting doctors ahead, putting doctors first, is that um, doctors bear the most amount of risk. But you just said that doctors don't bear the most amount of risk. That's correct. In fact, in <laughs> uh, well, you know, I mean, and maybe it's different than it was. I mean, we have to give credit. Like in the beginning of the pandemic, obviously stories from China, sure. high risk. But I think you're, you're, I'll concede to you right now, based on recent data sets, I cannot in good conscience argue that doctors are at the highest risk. And, and then I'll go even further and push it to you. There, within doctors, there's a huge distribution. There's the ER doctors who are maybe getting coughed in the face a lot. There's palm critical care doctors, maybe they have a higher risk. And then there are doctors who have like, you know, some clinical responsibilities and subspecialties. They're surgeons. Um, and just the last thing I'd say before I, I let you finish your thought, because I shouldn't have interrupted you. Um, Mar Marty, Mac Marty Macri, um, the Johns Hopkins surgeon, he actually wrote an article where he said he's going to personally decline the shot because he doesn't want to take it because he's so low risk because all his patients are screened before he does surgery. Um, so, I mean, I think you're, I'll concede to you, your point is true. Doctors are not the highest risk profession, correct? You, you know, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to uh, appeal to a different, another authority, actually, uh, Daniel Griffin, who is uh, a well-known physician. You might have heard of him. I don't know if you have. Um, who's on this show this week in virology and also this week in parasitology. But also he runs, he's an inf infectious disease doc who runs, um, oh, I forgot the name of the health program over in New York, uh, around that's based in New York City and on Long Island. Um, he's, he's basically in charge of the COVID protocols there. And he himself, when he was on Twitter early on, he's like, look, I don't know why I should get the, get mm. the, um, get the jab hurts because I have PPE. Like I have great PPE. Right. Um, so, but, but I mean, that got me thinking about that, but so anyway, we know now at the very least that, um, doctors at least don't have the, um, most amount of risk Fair at, enough. at worst, they have equal and probably less risk, at least risk from dying. So, so I think that's, a, that's a first move. The second move someone would say was like, yeah, but look, here's the thing is that when doctors get sick, what ends up happening is that that messes up the way the hospitals are going to run. And that has a knock on effect that basically diminishes the quality of care that people are going to get. And then consequently, there's going to be people who get sick and die as a result of that. My, my response to that is like, indeed, I, I, I want to grant you that. But I also want to grant the fact that um, if you have um, people live in multi-generational housing, right, where uh, there's, you know, someone who's, say, you know, someone in their 70s down to children, and they're in poor neighborhoods, usually if there's multi-generational houses, oftentimes they're immigrant neighborhoods. Um, these are exactly the kinds of communities where, for example, someone goes off to work, say um, a woman goes off to work, comes home. And because of the, she had a public facing job or something like that, or she worked in a warehouse as a result of, and it was, you know, for whatever reason, she got sick. She comes home and let's say there's three other people, her elderly mother, her husband, two kids, and her mother and her husband get sick. And her mother, you know, she's 75. She's, you know, maybe a little bit overweight. You know, hey, look, she's, she's an immigrant 
who lives with her children. She very well may be overweight, may have diabetes. Boom. Like yeah. right there. So, you know, I think that when we, when we talk about the relative risk, what we end up, at, what we end up doing is we end up, and this is sort of like the first lesson I draw from this. By medicalizing the pandemic, we view everything through the lens of what happens in the hospital. And I think we talked about this before. But I think that what's really important is that we recognize we should look through the lens also if, if what a vaccine is for is infection control, not disease control. I know that the end point is for people not get not for people not to get disease. What we want to do is deal with people who haven't been infected yet. Right. Right. And so. Um, so then wait. OK, so the first part of your premise is that doctors are not the high school's profession. The second part of the premise is that this idea that a healthcare worker getting sick will have these knockout effects may be true, but it's also true for other essential workers, too, in yep. a way that you don't see. And then I guess the third part that I will I will help you on um, is Please. that the, the the some say that the doctor not getting sick is the doctor is a nidus for infection within the hospital. But actually, I would argue that there's really well done studies that suggest with like the precautions we use in the hospital, um, like nosocomial acquisition from doctor to patient is, I think, virtually non-existent. So I think that will further your case. Um, that does. Yeah, it furthers your case. Okay, so this is, this is, I like, I love, I love this kind of provocative okay, experiment. Okay, so, so let's just keep going a little bit yeah, further. Go and on. I, I'm hoping this reveals some of the things, and, and in the end, I'll try to draw some lessons from it. So so now, now we might say, well, look, um, the reason why we need to prioritize doctors in hospitals, which is what most states did, is that well, that's the most efficient thing to do, right? Because look, the system's already there and so on and so forth. My response to that is like, look, uh, first of all, um, it's, it, it doesn't appear to be the case, right? It, it, it actually appears to be the case that, it, that by, move, by, by shoving everything into hospitals at the beginning, that actually created a barrier to um, pushing things out afterwards. It might have created sort of certain kinds of attitudes that people had towards vaccination that, were, that are not productive. So, but I, you know, regardless, I think that the, the, the deeper point is this, the fact we, we could have done it differently, right? We could have built things out in November and December and September in October, November, December, we could have started building things out in expectation of the vaccine coming in, right? We could have started saying like, look, we need to go to these communities, right? And we need to build out capacity within these individual communities, go to the unused schools that, you know, and they have fridges in there and stuff like that. So thinking about how we can build up the infrastructure a little bit so that we can have base within these different communities, vaccination areas that can then reach out to the very people in these multi-generational houses that, um, need to be and who are essential workers who need to be um vaccinated and someone says yeah but that's hard work that's complicated that's expensive and all i have to say is there is like look what you're telling me is that it's too hard and too expensive and too complicated to prevent the spread of this disease that's what you're telling me right you're telling me that it's too that, that it's so hard and difficult that that we can't possibly reach out to these people let's make that explicit right own that right and if you're going to tell me that oh no no we can do it it's just the federal government was such a disaster that we wouldn't know whether or not that we would get the vaccines. All I have to say is like, you knew you were going to get vaccines at the, at the hospitals. Right. You already planned it at the hospitals. So you, if you knew that much, then you could have taken that knowledge. So, well, it might have, been, might have delayed things a week. Fine, it delayed things a week. But it still got after that delay, that one week or two week delay even, we still got the vaccine out to the very people who most need it. In other words, I don't think, and I think that this is an essential point, we can't accept the infrastructure as given yes. as the natural infrastructure, In fact, and, as the right infrastructure. And proof of that is, 
if you exp- if you accepted the infrastructure as given, you wouldn't have a vaccine in 12 months. You yeah. already invested a right. ton of money right. in getting the vaccine right. so quickly. You sub- you took all their liability from Pfizer away. You know, you're happy to throw money at the richest guy in the world, Pfizer, um, and take away their liability in case the vaccine was a flop. Um, as I think, uh, didn't Merck just flopped? Merck flopped big. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have no liability because we've subsidized that. Um, but then what you're saying is, so I mean, your point is well taken, which is, Operation Warp Speed, 50% of it, yeah, do what you do, vaccine, make it. The other 50%, I think what you would argue is um, really good epidemiological evidence to figure out who is spreading the virus and who's at risk of getting the virus. And those people, insofar as they're at greater risk of getting and spreading the virus, ought to get a few bonus points in getting the vaccine, right? That's right. your okay, and and I think what you're also the provocative part of what your argument is that if you had that philosophy, um, then physicians, although <laughs> we think highly of ourselves, um, we might legitimately in this objective ranking fall lower because we are not as high risk as line cooks. That's right. So and you know uh, um, her name's Ann Sosin or Sosin. Mm-hmm. You had Sosin. Sosin. So put someone like talk to someone like her. Yeah about how to build vaccination infrastructure. I mean, I think, you know, she and people like her have the knowledge about how to build out these sorts of things in order to um, make sure that the vaccination goes exactly to the people who it needs to go to in order to, and this is just from a point of, of efficiency, the people who are most likely to get ill and transmit the disease are those people we need to get the vaccine to them, right? Mm-hmm. Now, I wanna, I wanna augment this point, right? And this is a point that's come up um, become uh, really, really salient as there's these new variants that have emerged. And Mm -hmm. as everyone has learned recently, thanks to this crash course in evolutionary biology that we've all had, um, fortunately, I actually took a bunch of evolutionary biology in uh, undergraduate and graduate school because it was something that was interesting to me, but I didn't know anything about viruses really. Mm -hmm. So now what what I've learned is that, um, what we've all learned is that it's the more the virus reproduces, the more it's going to mutate, which means the more infections, the more mutations. Boom. So simply from the perspective of trying to get control of the mutations of the new variants and so on and so forth, which everyone is talking about, and I'm not, I'm in no position to make an assessment about this stuff, about whether or not the new variants are more or less dangerous and so on and so forth. Let's accept that they are. Let's accept that 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 is the pandemic apocalypse. I see. So let me put it to you this way. I guess what you're saying is what I believe to be the case, which is that probability of bad mutation in virus is directly proportional to the number of viruses in bodies at any given time. And if you want to lower yes. the number of viruses in bodies at any given time, you need less bodies having virus in it. And actually, Bingo. yeah, and, and I think that's right. And I also think it, it actually, it cuts in two directions. One to the point you want to make, and one I just want to make this point, side point. Um, the people in that one versus two vaccine debate, which went on and on in my browser, and I was mm-hmm. a little bit, I had enough of it. Um, uh, you know, one, one of the arguments that the two vaccine people were making is that this l- leads to less likelihood of resistant mutation. But actually, that's not clear. Because if the one vaccine people are right, that delaying the second dose keeps the total number of people who have infections lower, it is very likely that it's possible that that leads to fewer mutations. Anyway, it, the mutation is proportional to virus copies in bodies, cumulative. Yep. Yeah. Okay, yep. so your point is well taken, which is that if you care about um, variants, which people seem to care about, at least from the tweets, that seems that way, um, uh, they care about it, then your goal is to minimize spread. Yep. So now I'm going to do my last one. Okay. Uh, and the last one is, uh, it's, it's actually a two-parter. It's about justice and dessert. Mm. I'm going to go backwards for it. So start with dessert. Okay. And this is the one that's going to probably piss a lot of people off. Look, a lot of people say that doctors deserve to get the jab first. 
because doctors have put themselves into harm's way for the sake of saving lives. And I think that's right. Doctors have. Thank you. And I also think that, um, and so that kind of taking on this risk and so on and so forth is supposed to be a basis for people deserving getting uh, uh, the vaccine ahead of time. But I actually think that, you know, there's an interesting thing that's going on here. And this is something that we talked about, I, we might have talked about before, but I think this is really important. And I don't think it can be talked about enough, at least hasn't been talked about enough, so we should talk about it more, which is that it is true that doctors are the ones who are stepping in to save people's lives who've got disease. But the thing is, is that the problem that we face is not who is keeping me uh, well when I get sick, but who is keeping me alive when I am well. Hmm, interesting. And the people who are keeping me alive when I am well mm -hmm. are not the physicians in the hospitals. Mm -hmm. They're the essential workers. They're mm -hmm. the folks down at the supermarket. They are the people in the Amazon fulfillment centers, people mm -hmm. driving the, the, the delivery trucks. Yeah. They're the people working at the local, and I think this comes back to the fast food restaurants who so many of us who are parents, I'm a parent, uh, we rely on the folks at the fast food restaurants, like yeah. seriously, or not right. the fast food, the, the, the takeout places, sorry. Yeah. The but local including, burrito yeah. joint, stuff yeah. like that. Including fast I mean, food, yeah, but other places and including too. including sure, fast right. food, yeah, all these people. Like, yeah. The thing is, is that like, when I ask, how am I alive? <clears throat> how is my family functioning? How are so many of us who are working from home mm -hmm. managing? And the people who aren't working from home, right? Mm -hmm. how, are, how are we all managing? We're all relying on a small subset of people who, or maybe not that small, a subset of people who are running the critical systems that are keeping us alive. None of them are doctors, right? So a lot of these people are walking into dangerous situations, and it turns out situations that are more dangerous from a fatality perspective uh, than physicians, willingly walking into these situations, knowing that they could get COVID, become ill, or one of their family members could be impacted by them when they come home. And there's a heartbreaking story, actually, in the Boston Globe uh, the other day, maybe it was a couple of weeks ago, and it was about a woman, she was up in Medford or something, and she said, and she was a... Um, uh, might have been a retiree or just about to retire. She's like, you know, I was so excited to go to work at the supermarket when this hit because I felt like this was me doing my part. Mm -hmm. I knew it was dangerous, but I wanted to do my part, she said. And her husband got COVID and he died. Mm -hmm. And all evidence suggests that she that she had it. She mm -hmm. knew she had it. I see. Then he got it and then he died. And there's a sense of like, it's not, she, what, she, she wasn't a fool. She knew that there was a risk. Right, she walked into it. So just as doctors, yes, and all, I think I'm not trying to take this away, the sort of heroic effort by doctors, nurses, and other healthcare workers to step in and take this kind of role in the face of a pandemic. And definitely early on, they did that, no doubt. But going forward, lots of people are heroically stepping in. And just because they're doing it because they have to make a paycheck yeah. doesn't make it any less heroic. Right. And well, honestly, right. I bet a lot of these doctors, these ED docs who have houses in Atherton or whatever, I don't know where how much they get paid. Maybe they don't have a house in Atherton. <laughs> What's do. next? Los Altos Hill. Yeah, know. yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I don't know. Um, look, they have mortgages they have to pay and they're not going to, they're not going to walk away. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I guess I would say I find your, I mean, I guess I would say uh, this is why I enjoy talking to you. You surprised me with your argument. I mean, I didn't, I didn't know you were going to make this argument. Um, I know. Sorry. No, 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 I love it. Um, and 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 this is also why I love philosophy and love people who think about philosophy because you, I mean, everything you're think you're, I mean, you're 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 applying some principles that we all agree on um, to reach a, a conclusion. I mean, this is a long branch of moral philosophy, which is kind of to kind of shake your intuitions a little bit. Um, and I think you're right. I mean, and then the other thing I have to say is my bias is I've never been one of those doctors that. Um, um, 
you know, thinks like I, I walk on lilies or something like that. I mean, I think there is a, there's a type of doctor that, um, has an exceptionally reverent view of the field, but I always see doctors as just another person, same fallacies and same human things. And, and I think, I mean, I think your point is right, which is that, um, anyone who's working because they have to work, um, who's doing something that society relies upon is a vital and heroic worker in this moment. And healthcare has always been known for, you know, a heroic business, but, you know, bagging, bagging stuff in a grocery store, which is something that I did for a while when I was a student, when I was 17 years old, that's, um, when you do that in a pandemic, um, you know, you deserve something, you deserve the same kind of appreciation and cooking in a kitchen because you have to do it to feed your family. Um, yeah, you deserve some appreciation. And if your risk of dying is odds ratio 1.67 and the doctor's risk of dying, it's odds ratio 1.005, then maybe, yeah, you should get a little bonus point and getting your vaccine. So I, I'm sympathetic. Yeah, I mean, I'm just yeah. talking about notions of dessert here. I'm, I don't actually think the vaccine should be distributed according to notions of dessert, but I think that that notion, that sense that like is a matter of what people deserve underlies a oh, lot. Oh, I see. This. Right, right. So, I and mean, I think that if, if a doctor wants to make that argument, and I've heard it a lot, like doctors are the <laughs> ones who keep you alive. No, I mean, like, look, I I am so grateful for doctors. There was a a physician in in the UK. <clears throat> and actually a midwife saved my daughter's life at birth. Mm -hmm, okay. Mm -hmm. I'm forever grateful to these people, like mm -hmm. so much so that I could, I, I could weep right now mm -hmm. on the drop of a hat, thinking about them out of gratitude. for them. But the thing is, is that like, that's a moment of emergency, right? And, but in moments of non-emergency, which most of our lives are filled with right. like the daily right. practice of our lives, right. it's not doctors who are ensuring that, um, you know, <laughs> I mean, I'm serious. Like when I flip a switch, the light comes on, right? right. That the networks are working. You're that, welcome. You're uh, welcome. Says the doctor. No, <laughs> yeah, we didn't right. do that. But, but I mean, to, I mean, to push your point would be if you, I mean, in a hypothetical world, if you closed all hospitals and versus you closed all takeout, when will people hit the streets in protest first? <laughs> and as much as I wish it will be for the doctor services being unsuspended, I suspect it might be for the takeout services being suspended. I mean, your point is well taken. Um, yeah. So, so, so I guess, so, yeah, go on, finish your thought. Let me, let me just end this with, so, so I'm not, I'm not going to take a stand on the question of dessert, but I think it's one that we have to put out there. And part of what I wanted to do in doing this is I just, I just thought it's, it's important to get, you know, people's views on the table, right? Like, yeah. I think one of the things that, that actually, you know, um, you know, I've had a couple back and forth over emails about, about social media. I think one yeah. of the things that gets people upset and, and I took a break from Twitter just cause it was, I found it to be toxic. One of the reasons why I left Facebook entirely. Yeah. Um, and I think that part of it is that people have a sense that, look, I deserve something, right? And if you challenge them on that, um, but you don't point out and work out carefully and thoughtfully about why they think they deserve it, why they deserve a, a movement away from equality, where everyone gets something equal. If you deserve something, you, you, you get a little more, right? Like I worked harder, so I deserve a, a better salary. Or I worked harder. I'm a teacher. I worked harder. I deserve a better grade or something, right? This is the, this is the view. And I think we need to um, get it out there and talk about it before people start making substantive policy decisions on the basis of it. One last one, and that's the notion of justice. And I think that this is actually one that everyone can agree on. And we talk about it a lot, but let's get that on the table. So for example, people will talk about equity, Yeah. right? But let's be, let's be clear here. Justice is demanding. Justice is not something that it, we just sort of like, oh yeah, justice, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, let's, let's be just. It's demanding. It makes demands on on our institutions and on, on us 
who shape those institutions. And one of the demands of justice, um, I think, and this is something that I think you've heard from some of your public health people, is that we need to recognize what, what we in the philosophy field call prioritarianism, which is this notion that there are certain people who should be prioritized. And in particular, the least well off ought to be prioritized. Now you may disagree with this model of justice, but it's a widely held model of justice. And often, it, sometimes we talk about it in terms of equity and so on and so forth. But the basic idea is this, look at society and look at the people who have been the most disadvantaged through no fault of their own. And ask yourself, should they be at the head of the line? Simply in virtue of that. And a lot of people think, yeah, as a matter of justice, strictly a matter of justice, we should design our institutions so that the people who get the first pull up are the people who through no fault of their own, through just the natural lottery and bad circumstances and so on and so forth, are the least well off. Now, when I think about that, I think, gee, just as a matter of justice, it is obvious that we should have tried our damnedest to build vaccination uh, infrastructure that would target them just as a matter of justice. Now, some of those people are the elderly. Yeah. And that's, we, that's you know, in, in these um, care homes, <clears throat> absolutely. But just as much, it turns out, it's the very people, the people who have to work under, under pandemic conditions just to survive, just so that they can yeah. make rent or pay that credit card bill or whatever it is, whenever that stuff starts coming in again, just so that they can cover the cost of all the different things that daily mount up and make you feel like you're drowning. Those are the people who feel like they've got to go to work, even if the risk is high. And I think just as a matter of justice, they have a claim. So let me so ask you, you this. Yeah, yeah, go together, on. Yeah. And I just don't see um, a case for in the future, and it's done now, but in the future, I don't see a case for building a vaccination infrastructure or some other kind of like, you know, immediate, urgent public health um, intervention that is akin to a vaccination infrastructure that targets hospitals and doctors first, unless there's some sort of special twist, right? So God forbid there should be another pandemic. Right. But if there is, which there probably will be, let's not God have our vaccination infrastructure rebuilt out of hospitals. Let's not put, let's not put doctors first. I don't know where they go. Yeah. But let's not put them first. That's very, That's my very, a lot of food for thought. And I guess um, it's going to take me a while to process this and think about it more. Um, I just want to share like, you know, where I was on this issue. I mean, I, when I initially heard this question of vaccine prioritization, I approached it as a, just a classical utilitarian. And I was thinking like, okay, uh, so you're, you're kind of doing a little head bob. So I want to know what you think. Okay. So, um, so here's how, well, the way I approached it was like, okay, um, the goal of distributing the vaccines would be to minimize like the cumulative damage from COVID. Like, like we want to minimize the cumulative damage. So in so far, so that's two products obviously one the spread of the virus and two um the morbidity of the virus which disproportionately hits older folks and and the age gradient is super steep you know uh 7500 times greater risk of death in an 80 year old than an 8 year old wait, wait, wait how much 7500 times greater risk of death in an 80 year old than an 8 year old what else is like that nothing ne uh, historically unprecedented no virus has ever been like this in the world ever flu no never not even this close yeah it, I mean, flu as a bimodal distribution, like they're slightly oh, right. higher risk. Yeah. Um, but, but nothing like this. I mean, once you start getting over the age of 60, 70, 80, the difference between, the, I mean, the, this is just is like a, it's a heat seeking missile for you. I mean, I, I mean, I told somebody it was like almost like Russian roulette. It was like a one in four chance of death if you get this. I mean, it's really a terrible thing. Um, yeah, but I've never seen an age gradient like that. I mean, okay. 
Um, so anyway, uh, that's one of the things that shakes out in these epidemiologic risk factors. So anyway, so I mean, the, my argument was like basically, okay, you want to minimize death, and I made some big equation. The equation was like, okay, what's your probability of getting this, which is related to like your occupation, your race, your socioeconomic status. That's something that we consider. And also, if you get this, what's your probability of propagating it to someone else? So that's something we consider too. Um, you know, the number of people in your household and those kinds of things, your ability to isolate. Um, and then what's the probability of something bad happening to you were you to get it? And I, I guess I, I did, I mean, I just kind of sketched out a equation, but I don't have all the coefficients. But I figured like it's actually a tractable epidemiologic question to solve it. But I guess my question to you is, um, what, you're what you're saying is, um, so I guess my, one of my questions to you is like, I guess it doesn't sound like to me, you're not a strict utilitarian here. No. Okay. So what, how would you, so what would be, how, how do you deviate? I mean, but a lot of what you're saying is a utilitarian philosophy because by, by killing the transmission, you're going to slow that cumulative damage of the virus. So how do you approach it from a moral philosophy? Like, well, how would you decide? Yeah. D describe your philosophy. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, first of all, I think that you're totally right that we need to actually adopt um, some kind of expected utility approach to this. So, you know, we need to, and exactly the kind of equation that you've identified is exactly the sort of thing that we want to construct. Um, so I'm not actually putting that aside, okay. but I, so the, the, the um, rehearsing the arguments I was making there was initially just meant to consider the arguments that someone would make for, for prioritizing hospitals and prioritizing doctors and trying yeah. to suggest that yeah. these are actually um, suspicious on, on multiple levels, or if they're not suspicious, at the very least own the principles that you're, that you're, um, putting forward. Like, for example, doctors are, are the most important members of society right now, which I think is an underlying assumption that a lot of people have right now. Right. Especially the doctors on cable TV. Those ones. Yeah. Are, yeah. yeah. <laughs> those, yeah those no, no, seriously. I mean, we can loop back to this. We've talked about this before. I mean, I, I yeah. actually have um, uh, sort of a slow burning, um, shall we say, uh, frustration directed yeah. at a lot of these physicians. Yeah. But um, so I think that is a really, really great question. So, so yeah, definitely you want to have some sort of expected utility function that's going to build in risk of, but you have to actually spell out, we need to spell out really, really clearly what it is the, what it is we're trying to maximize. Okay, right. 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 So, so we're trying to maximize, um, uh, you know, is it, is it qualities? Is it what, you yeah. know, like mine would be like life years lost from it, but I guess people kind of different things like cumulative number of people who have COVID could be, is different than life years lost, which is different yep. than, you know, qualities. We, yeah. Yeah. And, and then, you know, obviously I think that one of the things we definitely need to consider is, as you indicated, uh, the number of people who are infected because there's reasons to there's epidemiological or rather I should say evolutionary reasons to be worried about this. Uh, yes. Um, I should have put that in my model too. Right. Vaccine uh, escape is the probability. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, I don't know. I mean, so I, I totally agree with you that we need to be forward looking. That's the sort of uh, technical moral philosophy jargon here. Like we need to be consequentialist as it were I see. Um, yes. about this, but there's side constraints and the side constraints are questions of justice. Right. And yes. they're questions of dessert perhaps. Right. And I actually don't think that questions of dessert have no place at all. I mean, questions of dessert have some kind of place because people are so sensitive to them, right? People Very notions sensitive. Of are, are um, tied into questions of dessert. And, uh, but I actually think part of great leadership involves pushing people to um, take on board to, to uh, if not love, at the very least accept uh, principles of justice is guiding our institution construction, right? And mm -hmm. so one of the things that I would hope that leaders could do would be able to say, and you know, this, this comes back <laughs> to some like the physicians who are on, um, on television all the time, you know, it'd be lovely if they would make arguments in terms of justice, be like, look, the, um, uh, least well off the people who are, uh, doing the worst through no fault of their own. Right. And actually, I'm, I, I don't even want to put on the no th through no fault of their own thing. Cause I don't want to even get into that kind of, right. It, it, it's almost irrelevant least... to the question. Okay. But right, you know, I guess I, at least 
Yeah. No, no, no. Sorry. I guess I, I'm interrupting you, but I guess I, uh, but what I wanted to say is, um, like, uh, I mean, my idea of sort of a consequentialist view of it, um, will incorporate justice to some degree because insofar as you are at greater risk of getting it through your race, your socioeconomics, your occupation, you're going to get that much back to you in getting it. Then I think there's a justice question beyond that, which is, does justice mean beyond that? Uh, do you get a benefit beyond that of getting the vaccine? I don't have an answer. Um, the other thing is the point where we'll we'll have a huge overlap is um, one of the things was like um, residents, um, other young people, young physicians who were working on the front lines. Um, There's some public examples. They felt slighted, like they didn't get first priority. And I guess uh, I would say that, you know, they're, they, they're probably the risk of them acquiring the virus, although they may feel like it's high. Again, these data sets would suggest it's not as high because you're going to get up with PPE and your risk of anything bad happening to you is probably not so high. And your risk of and your ability to sequester yourself if you were to get it is actually pretty good. And maybe, you know, so I guess I would say that you know, I don't want to be too critical of them because I know they've put a lot of effort into lobbying for their cause and they were successful. But I was somebody who my, my intuition initially was not that. Um, that they deserve it, you know, what you, yeah, it, it wasn't initially that, that they are so deserving of it. Um, I, I viewed it from a utilitarian philosophy where I said, so insofar as it is best for everybody and uh, that, that they would get it, they should get it. But beyond that, I don't know. Um, and, and when I thought about their age and some of their other risk factors and the risk of getting it, I was, I had my doubts that, I mean, essentially, you know, put another way, the way you could look at it is um, people who are between the ages of 27 and 37 who mostly come from the children of rich people, because doctors are mostly the children of rich people, actually. Turns out, poor people don't get their kids in medical school. Um, For all the ways in which we deviate from national demographics, people in the bottom bottom 15% of household income, uh, those kids don't go to medical school at the same rate as kids from the top 15%. Um, Okay, so so this would be a vaccine distribution program that gives a lot of vaccines to people who have very low risk of SARS-CoV-2, getting it and dying from it if they were to get it, who are mostly very rich, um, who are socioeconomically and racially uh, homogenous, and who have like one of the best jobs in the world in terms of career lifetime earnings. So I, I guess my sympathy was not necessarily on their side, nor was it on my own side. I mean, I'm a 37 year old, um, or at least I think I was when I got, it. I think I'm 38 now, I guess. Um, and, uh, and, uh, you know, I do do clinical work. I, I believe it. I tell myself how, how important I am all the time, but I guess, you know, that's up for others to decide. Um, but you know, my risk is probably quite modest and I think the data would shake that out. Well, look, I mean, but I think that part of what's part of a, part of the struggle here is detaching the notion of doing important work from where exactly. you stand in the exactly. public health regime. Right, right. And I think it's important. This is why right, I mentioned right. the people who saved my daughter's life. You know, I think they do very important work. Now, right. it happens to be that in obstetrics, you know, I, I would say that perhaps under those, you know, it's a, it's a, that's a hairy atmosphere there. So, I mean. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's a high stress uh, atmosphere. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, it's unlikely that I, I can imagine PP coming loose or something like that under those circumstances. But I, I, this is not actually about obstetrics, but no, right. my point rather is that. Um, you do have respect for physicians. You appreciate what they do. Yeah, and I, but I also think that just in general, you know, one of the things that has happened is that we have, um, uh, th- there's been this, there's been an interesting revelation I think we've all had, which is which is that the guy who is delivering packages for us, he or she or they may very well be doing something that we are deeply, deeply grateful for. You know, I remember in you know early on in the pandemic, um, one of the things that brought me joy, that made me meet, that was really meaningful for me 
was seeing the mailman. Right? Yeah. And now, now I thought a lot about why. Yeah. It's not just because the mailman was bringing me the mail, which, <laughs> yay, yeah. or bring me a package or two, yay. But, I mean, yeah, I, I love that. But part of it also was that there was this kind of, like, profound uh, <clears throat> connection to the regular. Yeah. It was a rock on which we could stand. Right. Guys showing up. Neither rain nor sleet nor no. snow nor pandemic. They're going to yeah, bring you. No, yeah, right. No, it is and good. I needed that. You needed that emotionally. Yeah, we yeah. needed that, right? Yeah, and, and, that. and you know, um, in the UK, they had this whole like clap for carers thing. Yeah. Where at seven or whatever, you get out to clap for the, the Bang some pots and pans on the balcony. Yeah. Yeah, but, yeah. And but that's we awesome. Did, yeah, but we didn't clap for any of these other people. No, we didn't. I mean, people would yeah. make signs in my neighborhood. Their kids were making tons of signs for their... Um, for the delivery uh, workers, for the post people and stuff like that, the letter carriers. But the thing is, is that, I mean, the thing is that that wasn't institutionalized. Again, this is more like pushed down onto the um, the private responsibility of individuals and families. But I think that this is part of the thing that we all have to struggle with right now is this notion of like, oh, look, um, my job is important, therefore I should get a, a vaccination or my job's important or my job's not that important. I guess I don't have to get a vaccination. Right. That's not the way to think about it. Right. I think that it's, right. we, we, but that's, that's, a, that's the thing we have to struggle with. Right. We don't have to, right. and, and we should really, really, and I think this is actually totally essential. We have got to resist the um, habit of uh, seeing one's worth first in that one's job. But secondly, one's worth in relation to some sort of like standing with respect to pandemic response or something like that. I think that there's 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 something weird going on, and you know um, where uh, we've talked about this before. You get these categories of people that uh, play a certain role in pandemic response, and therefore they're valorized, and uh, people who don't play that role aren't valorized. And I, and I that's a problem. I worry about that. But you know, I I mean, I guess what it makes me think about is. Um... I guess the reason what you're saying strikes such a chord with me, I mean, a couple things. I mean, one thing I wanted to say is actually our conversation on social media is related to this conversation because if you went on Twitter and you said any of these things that you're saying to me now, you'd be, they'd, they'd destroy you. It'll obliterate you, my friend. It'd be a disaster. It would be a disaster. Screenshots, quote tweets, Matt Smith doesn't appreciate doctors, son of a bitch, Matt Smith, you know, go on and on and on and on, on about you. And I was like, oh my God, uh, we'll come to that topic. I want to I come to that. But, um, but the other thing it reminds me of is, you know, like I'm somebody who's worked a lot in the space of like, for many years, for a decade now, medical practices that doctors do that just don't work. And there's always a couple you can find from a cardiology, OB-GYN, you know, whatever. And whenever you mention these practices to people who work in that field, they're often very defensive because they tell you, I'm out here every day busting my ass to save lives and you're gonna come and say that this doesn't work, you know, screw you kind of attitude. And I think that attitude is related to the attitude you're, you know, you're kind of picking on here, which is that it is sort of a sense that you know, who is it that deserve, you know, we're doing good and ergo, we should be forgiven these things. But obviously, I'm not pointing it out to them to, I don't know, to humiliate them. I'm pointing it out to them to hope make their profession better. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to take a minute and I wanted to ask you this because I know our time is going to be out before before I know it. And I wanted to pick your brain on this topic. Um, we could talk about the social media angle, but I'll come, maybe I'll come back to that. The thing I want to pick your brain on is like the nature of, I guess it's related, the nature of online disagreements amongst I mean, this is a great example. You said this on Twitter. I can just, I can just see it playing out in my mind, and it's not going to end well for you. <laughs> You're going to have to be deleting Twitter for a little bit. Um, but I see so many examples recently that trouble me. Um, 
you know, there's an ID doctor in Scotland and she has a view that schools should, I think, generally open. She has a very middle of the road view. I mean, I don't think she's um, a hardline opener either. I think she's something in between that under the right conditions they can open. Um, and then there's another faculty member, I think, at London who disagrees. And this person, um, the one who disagrees in London has like, does a lot of the things that I, I note are problematic. They say, oh, don't listen to that other doctor. They're giving you misinformation or disinformation. Um, and then I think one of them blocked the other one, but it doesn't stop. They they have a separate account and they still screenshot and, you know, continue on this endless wow. quest to attack one person. That's one example. Another example I saw was some virologist. This virologist thinks that, you know, after vaccination, we should live our lives the exact same way as before vaccination. That's fine. That's a point of view. There's another ID doctor who thinks that after vaccination, we can relax some rules. And this doctor has been making their case. Um, and then I see, again, the same sort of mean-spirited, um, I don't know, put-downs, disagreement. And, and, it, and, it, and it quickly deviates. And then, of course, I'm always the victim of everyone's wrath, um, or often somebody's wrath. Um, but, you know, it quickly, it quickly devolves from, like, if you said what you, what you said here, you know, I mean, there are, const constructive, there are constructive arguments I could have made to try to rebut you, but I didn't because in part, I'm actually quite sympathetic to your argument. I think it's actually quite quite clever. Um, and it does have a lot of relevance for future pandemics. Um, but, you know, somebody could, but they won't do that to you on Twitter is what I'm saying. They're going to go after you. They're going to say all these nasty things. So I guess my question to you as a philosopher is, you know, philosophy is this thing where the very nature of the field is that smart people disagree. And everything, that's like your whole business, smart people don't agree. And you work really hard to bring people to your point of view, to become more persuasive, or to see where you may yourself have erred. Um, and what you're doing, you're, the thing you're practicing is the thing, you, you know, you, you say uh, medicine has a noble tradition. Philosophy's tradition goes back thousands of years uh, to the dawn of humanity. This is how people have long worked through puzzles from, the, from, the, from God to our day-to-day -day lives to how we should live, you know, uh, as, uh, as Socrates says in Plato, uh, this is no small matter, it's only how we ought to live. Um, so my question for you is, um, I don't know, like, how do you, how do you think about the, the arena for the debate, the debate itself? Um, you know, like, w where are we going afoul? Where could we be better? How should we have these debates? Um, where is the place we talk about this? You know, that, I guess that's my question for you. Uh, okay. That's a huge, that's a big one, man. Yeah, um, it's a big one. It's only the biggest so question I on my mind. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to, um, I still, you know, I, I think philosophy as a professional discipline is, you know, beset with exactly the same, uh, petty awfulness as any other professional. Is that discipline. true? Is that true? There's a lot of, Oh, sure. Shit yeah. Talking? I mean, really? Oh yeah. And yeah. I think, and, and, and cruelty and, and, um, a failure of being charitable and so on and so forth. Really? And, yeah. and obviously we also all are academics and, you know, there's the old, the, um, Entire pet the, the narcissism yeah. of small difference. And what is academic. it? The disputes are so bitter because the stakes are so low. <laughs> Got it. That famous right. quote. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So and, I didn't, I don't think I fully appreciated that. Okay. Go on. And it's a you know so it, it it's a white male uh, discipline. So the 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 difficulty of trying to expand the population who engages in the practice and expand the kinds of texts that we read and that we take seriously is. The struggle and it's hard work and it's painful for a lot of people and i think that um 
that pain of the, I mean, I, I'm not making, I, there's an, there's an old line. Uh, I'm, I'm offering reasons, not excuses. I see. Um, you know, I think that pain for a lot of people comes from a kind of sense that the very discipline that they were raised in is being transformed underneath them without their input or mm. without their control. Mm. And so they're losing a sense of themselves. They're like, I'm a philosopher, but I don't recognize what it means to be a philosopher anymore because you all don't, you know, you don't read these people anymore. Like you're changing, you you're changing. Do the, right. So when anytime the canon changes, people are going to feel, where's my Hume? Where's my Kant? You know, where's my yeah. Heidegger? You know? Yeah. Okay. Right. Exactly. Well, so, um, and especially, but this actually t ties in with some of the stuff that you're talking about, because I think that there is this, um, fear that I think a lot of people have that the, um, their self-understanding insofar as it's wrapped up in, um, you know, a particular set of ideas called an ideology or called a kind of mode of a, a discipline of thought or something like that, uh, that is informed by certain key texts or key figures in the past. And when you come in and you say, look, they're, these are, you know, these people are fundamentally evil or we need to abolish that or eliminate that. Again, reasons, not excuses. This can be totally discombobulating and can take, feel very, very personal. It can feel like, um, awful. Just as when one is systematically excluded, not even allowed to be part of the conversation because one's interests and in the people that one looks like is not have never been part of that conversation. That can also be personal, and it is. Um, so I think that one of the first things we have to do is recognize that uh, it's essential to try to recognize uh, that everyone has these kinds of vulnerabilities and that if you actually want to communicate with people and, and have a conversation with them, even though you're not, this isn't an excuse. Like I'm not excusing the old dude who, who's like, look, how dare you say that Kant was a racist or that Hume was a racist or something like that. How dare you do that? That makes me very angry. Like if you want them to be part of the conversation, then you have to recognize that there's a vulnerability there and it's a real one. And even if you don't like it, you have to hear it and deal with it in a way if you want them to be part of the conversation. Otherwise, it's just power against power. And at which point you're going to, you know, it's a certain group of people are going to mobilize whatever forces they have. And in the case of many people who are younger trying to transform the situation, it's going to be social media mobs. And, and for people who have institutional power, it's going to be the much more robust and sometimes much more frightening um, uh, institutional power. And so I think that one of the things yeah. that we have to do is move away from the um, sort of the step back into wielding the power that we have, be it social, institutional, whatever, in order to uh, work through our points of view and try to move into a discursive realm. Now, I don't think that there's some sort of like ideal discursive environment or I something see. like that. I don't think that power is absent from these kinds of things, but it, um, it always is, right? And just as when you criticize one of your colleagues, or you're not criticizing one of your colleagues, that's, that's the key. When you criticize a certain kind of medical intervention, I assume that's what you're talking about. Right. Some, yeah. And I, yeah, and some someone, yeah. And, and someone feels explode. personally attacked oh, yeah, by that. Always. You're not personally attacked. No, I'm not. <laughs> in fact, I, I often don't know who the hell they are. <laughs> like, who are you? Right. Like, I didn't know you. Right. So I don't, you know, I, I, I don't think it's a magic bullet. I mean, I do think, though, that, that one of the keys to doing this is actually slowing things down a little bit, yeah. which I think can be very, very frustrating. Yeah. Um, and that in and of itself is exclusionary, right? Because if you slow things down, then what happens is there's this accretion, accretion of understanding that slowly builds up with the people who have been involved in the conversation. And when someone new jumps in, that can be exper experienced as this kind of like sudden, oh, you know, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, almost violent in entry, as it were. Like, yeah. we're going to be all like Pla Plato here, like Alcibiades rushing into the symposium and, mm. and upending everything because, you know, um, 
And that can be experienced not as a, in Alcibiades case, comical, but as, you know, um, disrespectful. Let me ask, can I ask you a question on this topic? I've slow. Yeah. Okay. So I've had this question for a long time and I don't know the answer because it's really above my, above outside of the things I think about. But um, I guess you alluded to it. And so, and I guess, you know, full disclosure, I've read a lot of human Kant, you know, so I've read, you know, I've read what they wrote and a full disclosure, I think they're both very smart people. I mean, from what I, from what I read, I thought it was really, I mean, and, yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not an expert, but I thought that, you know, gosh, a lot of interesting things that were said in those books. Um, and, and, and Hume, I almost like, I, I really thought very highly of it when I read it at the time. Okay. And now I don't know all the details, but my understanding is that things come out with history and we learn some things about him that are unsettling or uh, uh, something that he did or said that was not good. And I guess I'm, I, I don't doubt that that's true. I probably, that is true that, uh, I mean, many of these people who I read their books um, from English language literature to philosophy to, you know, whatever history, they did some or said some things that were not good. Um, okay, here's my question. Um, I've written two books. I guess 10 people have, no, two, and two people have read them. No, okay. And, and I think of myself as a, you know, moral person. I'm a moral person by 2020 standards, right? But a thousand years from now, 500 years from now, 200 years from now, maybe they'll look back at me and they'll say, you know, he wasn't a moral person. You know why? Because, oh, they will. Yeah, for sure they will consider me immoral, right? All uh, of us. All of us. And I guess like some, of, and, and, and one of the things I think that they'll say is like, um, yes, he lived at a time that was diverse and people didn't say these kinds of offensive things that they said previous eras. However, he lived at a time where if you were born in sub-Saharan Africa, you had 0% chance of moving to the top 1% of income or something like that, a very low chance of moving to income. And he, he didn't stop that. He didn't stop the global poverty in India. He didn't stop that. In fact, he lived his life and most of his life he was indifferent to that. So he, by 2,270 standards, is a shitty person. Okay, so my question to you is, so I guess, so you accept both my premises. Okay, um, Hume wrote stuff that was interesting. Maybe he was flawed in some ways, and I don't even know what that is. So I, I, I'll forgive, forgive my ignorance. I wrote stuff that maybe had some points, but maybe I'm flawed in ways that the future society will look back at me and say I'm flawed. I'm sure, and so you concede my premises. So then my premise is, um, should my work be pushed out of the canon? I mean, not, not that anyone reads it. <laughs> Not that it's in any canon, like nobody fucking reads these books, but you know, but like, and, and what is like, I guess that's my philosophical question to you, which is like, as a society makes progress, how does one adjudicate who still is deserving of being in the canon by future morality that they did not know at their time they were ignorant to, and that we have since progressed, accepting that all these things are good. Progress is good and and you know so how do you how, how do we think how do we reconcile this i think this is like such a core tension i read about all i mean at least at least the oh, internet, i mean this yeah. is a it's a deep deep issue and I, you know I, and and i <laughs> um uh i think that one of the big i mean there's, there's a lot of a lot of parts here i mean i think one of the things we just have to appreciate the fact that the canon itself is a construction right like it's an invention okay. that was created by a very very small group of people in order to sort of enforce a certain mode of thinking and so on and so forth so i think right there we just need to own that right and recognize that it's contingent like who's in and who's out is utterly contingent like um and it reflects and the canon itself reflects the exclusions that existed at the time i see so okay. the fact that like mary wollstonecraft and so on and so forth isn't part of the canon is nuts right and and the fact that um um you know uh for a long long time people didn't include like frederick Douglass as a central philosopher of uh, american philosophers you know that's that's nuts um 
So, I mean, these are the kinds of things that we, um, that, that we it's good that we negotiate them. We should always be negotiating them. And, um, you know, I think we would almost want to resist a kind of like a canonization. So I, I on, on the other hand, though, um, there's a further question about, well, should we even bother reading Hume or Kant today? Um, especially since, you know, hey, what's good about Hume and Kant uh, can be reflected in stuff that's written today. And you don't have to stumble over the noxious phrases in Hume and Kant where they talk, they express, you know, uh, just like outright, uh, they outright denigrate um, Africans and, and Native Americans. Um, it, I get that, you know, I'm pretty sympathetic to that. Um, on the other hand, and this is just, you know, I don't, I'm not coming down like with a full force ruling here, but I think we, you know, uh, we read things for different reasons, right? And I think that there's no reason to, as it were, cancel Kant and Hume. If I cancel them, we mean consign their works to the flames. There's an enormous amount of value to encountering right. These ideas, as they were articulated at their time, sometimes for the first time, right. there's an enormous amount of value to puzzling through these things, learning how to read what is foreign and difficult in your, you know, from hundreds of years removed, and try to make sense of it, both intellectually and historically, as an act of intellectual history. And also, I think that there is, um, uh, especially both human, con you know, their personalities, the good and the bad, but in this case, the good shine through Hume, you know, is, is delightful, is yeah, funny. Is, I know. Um, yeah. is, there's, there's something charming about them. Yeah, very. There's something, the depth of, with which, um, the depth of, of Kant's intellectual angst shines through often in his work, <clears> even <throat> though it can be dry. Um, and I think that these are the sorts of things are, are good for people to encounter and good for people to wrestle with even though there's odious features of it. So on the other hand, though, I mean, they're, they're not all that we should read, right? Yes, sure. And for the student who doesn't want that experience or for the educator who doesn't think that kind of experience, that kind of training isn't important, then don't include human Kant and just do the contemporary stuff because you don't want, you don't feel like it's useful to, for the, your student to encounter these difficult things over which they'll stumble. But I do think that there is one other point here, which is, um, uh, you know, perhaps makes me put it makes me an outlier in in my community which is that i actually think it's good for people to stumble over these things yeah. for the very reason that difference is present today just as 200 years from now there's going to be different views about what is right and wrong good and bad today there are different views about what's right and wrong good and bad there is disagreement there's radical disagreement and if we simply treat every single person who we encounter with whom we disagree morally or politically as instantly the enemy, yeah. as instantly someone that must be canceled, or by which I mean, you know, removed from the conversation and right. so on and so forth, the possibility of a polity of, of, of some kind of, you know, meaningful communication with these people is gone. Now, I don't think that it's always on the, if you put it in such abstract terms, it sounds like that then therefore people say, you know, people who are systematically excluded, uh, uh, um, excluded from this discourse or the people, this, these, these kinds of conversations, the people who are systematically insulted in these conversations, say like a black woman. So say like, well, why do I have to do that work? Why do I have to make that effort? Fair point. You shouldn't have to make that effort. You already are working in, you know, working in a society where you face every kind of hurdle that I as a white man do not face, right? On the other hand, um, that doesn't mean that, for example, um, someone who has odious points of view must be utterly excluded. What needs to happen is someone like me who does have these privileges and 
you know, and the, the, basically the site is built for me. I have all these affordances. I'm the one who should do the work and reach out to the person who says like, you've got, you've got you know, you need to create, I need to challenge you. I need you to become a better person so that this person actually can enter in conversation with you in a, in a meaningful and respectful kind of way. And that's my responsibility, right? It's not her responsibility to face up to the racists and the white supremacists. That's mine. That's my job, right? Now it's always fallen to black women to do this, but it shouldn't. It's my job, but it doesn't mean on the flip side that when I'm engaging in the work of trying to in, face up to these odious points of view, these points of view, this difference. I'm just going to call it difference. When it's time to face up to this difference, the answer is not to cancel. It's not to yell. It's not to scream. It's not to destroy. It's to try to find a way to actually bring people in. Now, how do we do that? I don't know. I mean, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm just a philosophy professor. Um, uh, how do my limited experience, personal experience in, I, I have a background in political action, union organizing, stuff like that. Like, you know, a lot of it's just like sitting and talking to someone, right? Like seeing them as a human and right. spending time with them. Right. This is way off topic. I'm sorry. No, uh, I, I find it fascinating. I mean, I guess I would say, I think um, you've probably given one of the most eloquent answers to this question I've ever heard, public or private. You know, and I'm glad we have. Uh, can, oh, that's really nice of you to say that. Super eloquent. Um, I think there are many people who privately struggle with this question, and they're obviously afraid to talk about it. I think that's very common. Um, and I think you're right that there is some balance that we need to strike between, um, you know, there are lots of people who wrote lots of good books in history. We don't, we don't read all those books and they're not always brought to our attention. And there is some injustice in that. Um, and there are lots of schools of thought. And, you know, of course, my parents are from India and India has had a rich philosophical tradition captured in a lot of stuff that never, and I, and I took a lot of philosophy classes and we never hit on any of that stuff. Um, so there are things that are, right, t totally omitted and, and, and missed. Um, and, and I don't know, every, and I have not read the complete works of Hume or Kant. I've read selections of it. Um, and so I can't comment about all that's in there. I don't know what's all in, all in there. I don't think I've read the complete works of many writers in any genre, um, in anything. Um, so I can't comment about them. And I don't know anything about all, most of their personal lives and what they did. Uh, but I have no doubt that some of them said or did some things that I would disapprove of. But I think there is some tension, and you've articulated it well, where, you know, I don't know. I think there are many people who would lament if you, if you took all the Hume that was ever written and threw it away, because there is something to get from it. Um, I oh, think, yeah. I, I think there's a lot to get from. I mean, I, re, I remember like some of his passages, I think are vividly in my mind. I can remember, um, you know, when he, like he questions the meaning of existence and then he has some line about, but when you're sitting in front of a fire, drinking a glass of wine, how those questions fade from your consciousness. Like they, they take on such you just one, four, seven, baby. It's one of my favorite things in the world. Right is that there. what it is? It? Yeah. <laughs> treatise of human nature. Yes, the treatise of human nature. Uh, right. Okay, so that's a great, I mean, just such a great evocative thing that really puts like a lot of the stuff that Descartes and him were talking about in in context and perspective of how, how philosophy is this thing you can do when your belly's not hungry, you know? Um, uh, right, so I thought it was beautiful. Um, and, and then the other thing I think is like, I can talk more about the space that I occupy, which is biomedicine. Like, um, there have been some bitter and fierce debates in my own career, which is not that long, 15 years in this field. Um, and, and things shifted a lot. Like 15 years ago, if you wanted to say something like mammograms, maybe, maybe consider not doing them, you know, that they would be really a lot of people angry with you. Um, but the, the, the but that whole debate has, has evolved and, um, and, 
And and then, you know, I don't know if every player in the debate ever once did or said something I would disapprove of. I'm sure that's the case. That's true for like lots of people. Um, but doesn't mean that their writing wasn't important at the time and still can be important. And then I guess the last thing I want to say is like, you know, I, I try to tell young people, which I hope I'm still a young person, but I try to tell young people younger than me that like I learn sometimes so much from people who I passionately disagree with. I hate everything about what they're saying. I really hate it. I hate what they're writing. I hate their financial conflicts of interest with drug companies because it's something that irritates me. I, you know, they're all, and I, I, I feel like they're a cheerleader for the companies and like these are the things I think about a lot. Um, and I really dislike a lot of it. But there are a few people um, whom I dislike greatly that I voraciously read everything they ever write. And when they have a new article, I get like an email alert and then I read it because Sometimes people you disagree with are really clever in different ways, oh, yeah. and they apply their cleverness, you know, in an I would argue nefarious, you know, nefarious. You know, that's how I view it. But but they apply their cleverness in a different way. Um, but sometimes I learn something about what I want to do in my life um, for the, the causes I believe in. And here I'm not talking about like Hume level cause. I'm talking about like very tiny little corner of medicine that no one really cares about um, things. So anyway. I just want to say, I mean, so I found your answer to be really good because I think people have difficulty reconciling these different feelings. And it's so easy to just be angry, I think, either at the fact that anyone's reading Hume or angry at the fact that anyone doesn't want to read Hume. You know, you can get angry on both extremes and not this kind of nuanced way you put it. Well, you know, man, I think, I mean, one of the things that we're in is this kind of age of anger, age of oh, yeah. um, of catastrophism. Uh, this notion that like, uh, I, I, th I think that one of the things that we're struggling with right now is whether or not we're going to live in an age of where we have kind of a politics of anger that drives us or a politics of joy. And That's I think really that this important. is, this is really important to me actually, because, um, and I think that this has actually animated a lot of the way people have thought and worked through COVID and that, um, you know, what people want to do is they want to say, oh, well, you know, um, they want to blame it all on Trump or something like that. And I think that there's there's an, there's, an, there's a mistake here because um, the, it is natural to respond to this kind of situation with, and with, a, with fear and the loss that has occurred for everyone with a kind of anguish. You know, like I'm anguished at what my child has lost from not, not being able to go to school. And, you know, she now hates going to school because she doesn't like online school. She's like, it's just boring meetings and blah, blah, blah. Um, this stuff has no meaning to her, right, anymore. And I think, and that's a small anguish for me. I hope she'll be okay. I think she will. But there's lots of people who have lost so, so, so much more from those they love and give their lives meaning, um, dying to having lost funds because of, of um the cost of the economy sh shutting down or everything else under the sun. This is a terrible anguish time. And I think that a natural response to that is anger. And a natural response to feeling pain and loss is to, is to feel resentment. And that resentment seeks an object, right? And then that moves people's uh, reasoning from there. And uh, to, you know, bar from Hume, uh, reason is a slave to passions. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure I I'm convinced of that, but still our passions play a huge role in driving how we reason. And so I think that one of the problems when you when you succumb to the politics of rage, when you succumb to a politics of anger, is that actually um, it it it's not self-sustaining, right? Um, anger seeks an object and then burns itself out, and then you in order to reignite, it must have another object, mm -hmm. or it must keep oh. finding a deeper and deeper way in which this object of your anger has angered um, you, yeah.
Yes, exactly. So, it's, a, it's a legitimate source of resentment. Trump is and like I a think, big one. And then like every week on Twitter, there's a new minor character. <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. Yeah. No, but that's exactly right. And I think, <laughs> and I think that, um, and I, I don't think that's a sustainable kind of politics no, because for many, many not. reasons, but not it's exhausting. Uh, part of it is because yeah. it's, it exhausts itself. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and, um, and, it, and in the process of exhausting itself, it's destructive and it uh, limits the possibility for the, the exactly the kind of understanding across difference that is necessary in order for things to be transformative. And I actually think that, and I, I know this might sound like a reach, but I think that um, the politics of, of personal responsibility that was being peddled during um, from the beginning of this pandemic till now is exactly the sort of thing that feeds into a politics of anger. Oh, it's so exactly well the sort of so thing well that said. generates the um, conditions where people are unable to see, to think politically without thinking with rage and therefore see, trying to find objects to be pissed off at. And I think on the flip side, there's a politics of joy and a politics of joy is constructive. It takes hard work, but there's a way in which, and it's, and it's public often. And, and this is one of the reasons why I advocate for public interventions as public health interventions. I think, and this is one of the things that I've written about many, well, I've said a lot of times insofar as I've written about it probably once, um, this notion that what one of the important interventions that we could have made politically is say, for example, built these like white tents in, in areas that were COVID tents, that were testing tents, that could have right. then become vaccination tents, by the right, way. Right. And, and there would have been sent, that, that these would be sent, the public centers of, of, of the collective recognition that we're in the middle of a pandemic. And they'd also could be sites of grief, they could be sites of joy, they could be sites of meeting and so on and so forth. But the point here is that it's a, a constructive politics where, and by the way, I want to say that joy and grief can easily coexist, mm, right? Which mm -hmm. is one of the reasons why you can go to funerals, be filled with grief and laugh your head off right. when you reflect upon the person who lost, right. you've lost. Um, uh, um, and grief and anger can also be twins, but grief and joy can be twins as well. And so I think that there's this, this question about what to do with our grief and, and our anguish. And because it can be a twin with anger and a twin with joy, let's twin it with joy. And how do you do that is a difficult question, but it's the sorts of things that a lot of people in public health and outside of public health, thank you very much, urban planners and other people have been thinking about. It's like, let's create spaces of public joy in the context of this pandemic. Here in Boston, it's a giant pain in the butt to go ice skating outside. It's really hard. You have to stand in line. So why, are, why, don't, why, aren't there, why didn't the city invest in a ton of free ice skating? Rides? Right. Right. And um, yeah. no, I think and yeah. this sort of thing and, and, and it's this kind of thing that I actually think creates exactly the kind of environment where people who might have a lot of disagreements on on Twitter or something like that are now interacting with one another in a positive environment. And hey, look, I'm not saying this is going to solve our disagreements, but it is going to allow us at the very least to find in the same way that when I read Hume and I find something valuable and, right. and something I can take away in some way I can relate or something like that, even though probably he didn't think very highly of Jews and I'm a Jew, so whatever, hmm. I know content, but so what? Like I can find something in there, right? Similarly, I hope that I can find something in my neighbors who maybe I disagree with, but here we are ice skating with our kids together and they don't have a mask on. I have a mask on. I'm just, but like, like we're doing it together, not shouting at each other online as right. it were. Right. So, so I think that this is part of what I'm part of, I think part of a message that is absent, that is really, really important to me, which is that it's about these kind of infrastructural and communal interventions that create spaces where people can actually respond to the pandemic, paradoxically, some might think, with joy instead of with anger.
And that doesn't mean you don't feel the anguish and the pain. It just means you're the, what you twin it with is joy, not with rage. Does that make sense at all? Ah, oh, so well said. You know, um, I know our time is up, but I I, I want to leave you with a funny story that made me think about, which is like, you know, like you you know, people are in an angry place when the thing they're getting about angry about is like you know, from some point of view is like also kind of absurd that they're so angry about it. Um, and uh, so I just say like, so I was like the victim of all this angry mob that came to me. Um, what did I do? What was my crime? Well, you know, um, I don't know. I have a view on um, what you can do after you've been vaccinated. And my view is like, you know, I read all the data. Um, and so like, you know, I know that like uh, after the second dose of the vaccine, at the time of the second dose, they like stuck a swab in the Moderna people and like one in a thousand had PCR positivity. Doesn't necessarily mean you're infective, but like one in a thousand PCR positivity. I also know that if you and I live together and you had COVID, like your risk of giving me COVID is like maybe one in six, something like that, roughly. Yeah. Those are, okay, that's like household infectivity. So then I'm like, okay, um, you know, now let's like let's just say I've been vaccinated, I got two doses, I'm even 14 days out from my last vaccine. Like, is it one in a thousand anymore? It's like one in five thousand, one in ten thousand, something like that is my risk of maybe having some nucleotides in my nose. What's my chance of infecting you if we were to like you know meet up? I don't know. It's it's not one in six, which is the risk if we live together and I had full blown COVID. I'm saying maybe one in a hundred. So now we're talking about one in a hundred thousand, one in a million kind of risk. And if I compare that to like me unvaccinated on commercial flight, maybe there are figures that are floated like one in five thousand kind of risk. So anyway, so long story short, my point of view is like, look, there's no such thing as zero risk in life. You got to have some risk. And if two people are vaccinated, they have dinner together, and it's like we're talking about risk. Oh, yeah. Order. Yeah. That's okay. That's my point. Of view. One in ten to the power of six, and one in ten to the power of seven kind of risk. Super low risk. Okay, this is how I, I think about things. I like numbers. I like, you know, I like to think about, okay, anyway. So anyway, so then I wrote some stuff on it, tweeted out and like, you know, whatever. People are not happy with me. They push back a little bit, push back a little bit. And then one day I was like, I don't know. I think I was just, it was literally a spur of the moment, like impulsive, like, you know, little tweet. And I was just thinking about these people and like they, so, I mean, they were getting like more and more irritated with me for saying that you can take some liberties in life. Um, and then I said, you know, I think like the core of the issue is like, I think some people like genuinely believe that like there's a thing called zero risk and zero COVID and like that this is attainable. And I personally don't think that's attainable, not in the US with the reality we've been given. And so then I tweeted, um, I want to write, this is my tweet, it's like, I want to write a children's book about a bear. And the bear doesn't want to go outside. Did you see this? You didn't see this. Okay. The bear doesn't want to go outside until it's perfectly safe. And he's waiting at the window and it's never perfectly safe. And his whole life goes by. Okay, that's my tweet. And then the second tweet was, um, in the sequel, he stands at the window and anyone outside, he shouts disinformation. Because <laughs> that's, that's what they told me. <laughs> and then the third tweet was like a link to my article. Okay, so this was my thing. And then like, oh God, like one day later, there were like screenshots and they were like, somebody was like, oh, Prasad is a charlatan and uh, attention seeker. And someone was like, at UCSF, fire this son of a bitch and he's a horrible person. Oh my God, hundreds, hundreds and hundreds. Like I looked at my phone, I was like, oh shit. <laughs> and there's nothing. And once they got you, like once they're all so raid, they're all rare, attacking me. You know, it's like when a grizzly bear gets you, you just have to play dead and wait for them to lose, get bored. <laughs> and like, and like, you know, you can't delete your tweet. God forbid they'll attack you twice as hard you can't uh, uh, the apologies for what for i'm not even I, I can't apologize for something i'm not sorry for it was a fucking tweet about it i was like it's a tweet about a children's book and a bear i was like it's just a tweet man and um and yeah, they're attacking and like somebody I know is a professor got a text and he was like, what's wrong with your friend? He's out of control. And I'm like, out of control. It's just a harmless little. Okay. Anyway, so it like escalated. And so then I, I was trying to explain this to somebody who's not on Twitter 
And then they're like, so what did you do? They get all that rage. And I was like, well, I said this thing about a children's book and a bear. And then they're like, what children's? <laughs> like, what are you talking about? And then I think like someday in the future, a year from now, two years from now, where tensions are a little bit calm and when we're in a different place emotionally. And if somebody asks me, what was that offensive thing you said? And then I'll have to say, well, I said that I wanted to write a children's book about a bear who didn't want to go outside until it was perfectly safe but it was never perfectly safe. And then they're going to say that that's the stupidest thing for anyone to get angry about because it's a really trivial. Um, but I guess it goes to your point, which is that like these cycles of anger, you know, they build on each other and um, you can get caught in, caught, caught in the maelstrom. Just like, you know, if you tweeted like what you were saying about whether where doctors should be in the priority, you would get caught in a different maelstrom where, yep. and, and it is a type of politics. It's a politics of anger. And, and we don't see how, the politicians who have failed us in many ways, they've kind of baited us into playing this game where we oh, just, yeah. yeah, right. So just, I'll give you the last I, word. I, I yeah, know, take your thought. I know we're, we're out of time. Yeah. I just want to, the, the, this thing about zero COVID, there's this thing that's going on, which is just shocking to me. And this is part <laughs> yeah. of, um, you know, a, just a general failure to, you know, collectively process this catastrophe. And, um, and I, when I say collectively process, I don't mean like as a whole country having like a group hug or something like that, but I mean to really like create spaces where we collectively manage this in some, you know, forms. Um, and that's when people like you say, look, the vaccine is a cause for hope. When people like you say, yeah. when people get vaccinated, go hug the people you love. Yeah. When people respond to that with anger, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I find that to be astonishing yeah. because what's going on there is people are saying to you, do not be hopeful. Stay in your defensive crouch. The world is ending. It's this, it's this impulse to the dystopian, um, to dystopian possibilities. Uh, it's that is in many ways um, has been triggered in so many people. And I honestly fear that we're not that for many people they're not going to be able to pull out of that tailspin. Right. That there actually could be um, tremendous negative effects. Uh, to, and and I don't mean I don't mean to be paternalistic. I mean like fine, you're, they're going to suffer. Yeah, I think so. But also I think there's just going to be negative effects socially, mm. because I think that if you think that the world is always out there to harm you, if you see the world is filled with threats then it's very difficult to see the hopeful person who's trying to construct alternatives as anything other than a peddler of threat. Hmm. And I think that's what's happened to you is in to a certain degree. And I find that to be really distressing. And I, and look, I, I don't know what a vaccine read, what a vaccine is for, if not to create conditions where my children can hug their grandparents. I don't know what a vaccine is for, if not to create conditions where my children can go back to school and play with their friends. I just don't know what it's for. But if someone tells me that everything is forever changed and that we will, for a generation, never go back to what it was like in 2019, I'm just gonna look at them and say two things. One, everything always changes. So yeah, we can't go back to what it was in 2019. But two, at a certain point, the loss is so great, right? That we just what what's happening is people are 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 almost reveling in that loss. Yeah, they're looking at at the narrowed world, this constrained world, this this like you know marinating themselves in fear, and 
they're weirdly reveling in it. Yeah. And they don't want anyone else to break out of that. And I don't, I think that that creates, it makes it impossible to find a settlement that would allow us to actually, I don't want to use the phrase open up, but allow us to, as it were, transform into a post-COVID world that is recognizable from right. a pre-COVID, with pre-COVID eyes. So I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, this is sort of ill-formed thoughts, but no, I think it's really, really important. Yeah. And I, I, for one, cannot express my gratitude to physicians like you and other people who, because of the kind of weird set of social esteem, that the kind of social esteem that's attached to people with MDs and MPHs at the end of their names, um, I'm so grateful for people, for people like you who are saying, embrace the hope. Mm -hmm. no, like, I you. think that that is just from a political perspective, essential. You can tell me, oh, no, from an epidemiological perspective, it's not essential. Dude, what, yeah. like, the goal is not just people not having disease. Like, <laughs> yeah, if my like, kids cannot yeah. wait, my grandpa, my parents uh, no, cannot I wait another it's... year not to see my kids. Yeah. I, anyway. No, I, thank you so much for saying sorry that. Sorry about that. Well, if you were so grateful, I'm why grateful. you put me in the back of the back vaccine line, man? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. Just no, no. Thank you. you got me, man. No, no. Uh, I thought. I mean, and I really appreciate it. Um, yeah. No, I. Uh, I mean, I genuinely run the numbers, and I come to my conclusion. And I don't know. Well, you know, they can do what they want. But um, uh, thank you so much for doing this. I, uh, I, 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 I learned a lot, and I got to think about a lot of what you told me. Um, I think it's it was super it was super enlightening to me. Um, it always is. And I think that's why people, I got so many emails about your first visit. Um, I'm so glad. Yeah, no, I mean, and I think it speaks to your broader point, which is that um, there are so many um, people from diverse backgrounds and disciplines and fields of training who have a lot to contribute uh, when it comes to talking about COVID-19. And um, I'm glad uh, that you're among them. So thank you so much for doing this. Thanks, man. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to Season 3 of Plenary Session. Plenary Session is produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it and no one else. Plenary Session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time.